This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Professor Marlene Dixon from Texas A&M University. In the first part, we had an interesting discussion on the challenges of sustaining a meaningful career in sport management and in academia more generally. In the second part, we will focus on Professor Dixon's extensive work on women in sport, as well as understanding the work-life interface of people working in the sport industry. Welcome back to the podcast, Marlene. I look forward to our conversation. Great, me too. And so... I really find both topics so interesting and they will clearly kind of link into each other. But let's start from girls and women's sport, which has been really at the core of your your research for so many years. And so when we look at girls and women's sport participation and how this can be enabled and how women can be empowered, this is actually quite complicated. And we know that many initiatives have these good intentions, but they might actually be reproducing harmful stereotypes. And on the other hand, hiding these structural inequalities that still influence girls' and women's opportunities to participate and to have these meaningful experiences. And with your colleagues, you've, students and colleagues, you've addressed these questions of, for example, what is empowerment and who is empowered in sport and who is not. So I think this would be quite a good starting point for our conversation. So explore a little bit of these tensions when it comes to these ideas of sport being something that can be empowering for women. Well, I think, you know, I've been thinking about this in a couple of different ways. And, and one of the ways is with the work with Soyeon Lim that she did around her dissertation. And she was asking the question, what does empowerment mean? And what is empowering to women in different contexts? And for me, that was so insightful because uh, we learned a couple of things in that. And, and one of the big picture findings from that study is that empowerment doesn't mean the same thing to different women, and it doesn't look the same in different contexts. And interestingly, even within the same context, it can have different meanings. And so her study specifically, one one of the things that's fascinating to me is that for the younger women in that study, empowerment to them meant participating in sport experiences that were co-ed, where they, the women said, we want to participate in traditional sport, traditionally male sports with men so we can learn the lingo. And so when we are in, in the workplace, 
we actually have a sense of place and space and equal footing and we can join in in those conversations and we're playing too. When we talked about um, with the next generation of women, um, they said, actually empowering to me looks like a quiet space with a safe personal trainer or a small group of women and actually just carving out time for myself is empowering. And I thought what was also really interesting, what they said is, you know, from a cultural standpoint, they said, I cannot go join a gym. And now all of a sudden I come home and I refuse to cook dinner for my family. And I'm, you know, raising the flag of, of gender equality and those kinds of things. And they were like, that would blow up my family. And that's not my intent. Or at the worst case, my husband would permit me to go back to the gym. So, you know, we have to, that's a very specific context. That's a very specific um, instance. But I say that to mean that just even within one study, you could see where empowerment means different things. Mm -hmm. And what I think Soyeon was really passionate about in those findings was we can't impose our definitions of empowerment onto a sports setting and say, well, that's not empowering. The participants have to be able to define for themselves what's empowering, and we need to honor that and scaffold that and design sport programs that fit what they say is empowering instead of telling them what's empowering. Um, and I've become much more sensitive to that um, after working with her in that area. But I think the other place that's been interesting of late, and we haven't actually written on this yet, it's just stirring one of my new grad students, um, she's actually in the Department of Communications, and she talks a lot about safe spaces and the pro, like the double-edged sword of safe spaces. And we talk about, for example, in Nairobi, in Kibera, in places like that where we create these basketball courts that are literally <laughs> and metaphorically safe spaces for women. and. She and I have talked a lot about that is a great thing. We need to have those things. Um, but also, what and how do we help people trans transition from there to where the safe space now doesn't become, I don't want to call it a prison, um, too safe, to where it becomes confining, right? So where you have these adolescent women, high school age, who have found this safe space, this safe program, and actually literally a physical place behind the gates that is a safe space within the whole of Kibera. But now what happens when that's your safe space and you are too confined there and you need to move on and you need to graduate from high school and you need to graduate from that program and you need to transition out into other places, but you can't get out of that. Like it's too safe. It's too comfortable. How can we create escalators out of there? How can we create appropriate scaffolds to transition out of these very safe programs in two ways? One is that they're okay to leave and they feel empowered to leave and they're going to be okay. But the second is to be sure that we're not setting them up um, with vulnerabilities for the next level. And I've thought about this a lot is what happens when we set up young women like this, right? And they love basketball and they have some skill 
but they are passionate about basketball. And then you send them to the next level. They're ready for the next level. They want to play on some semi-pro team. And some club team picks them up and, and isn't this great because now they've made this next level. But without appropriate scaffolding, they now become the most vulnerable person on that team. They become most vulnerable to coaches who want to take advantage of them, coaches who want them to pay whatever price it is for them to get to play. And they feel like they can't say no. They feel like they don't have a voice because this is their dream. This is what they wanted. And if and some of them, if they don't do this, they don't really have another path. And I've become increasingly mindful of, man, we sure want to make sure that we are setting them up for success in the long run and in and scaffolding those transitions and not just looking in the immediate of, of the empowerment of this particular program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done a little bit of work interviewing coaches as well and on their career development and one female coach told me that the problem has been that you get your qualifications your coaching badges but then you kind of get out to the world and there is nowhere to go when for example these coach development programs and courses for women are also becoming more popular but then there isn't like these next steps to actually move move further within this career path because then you en- enter the world of sport and the world of coaching which is very male dominated and there you end up with all these barriers that were not anticipated by when you were for example doing your coach education yeah 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 and and that's a real challenge and i think that's a challenge not just for women i think it's it's the solution is not just women helping women I mean, I think that the solution is systemic and the solution also involves men and men being willing to um, lift a hand up and to identify quality where quality exists, regardless of what skin or gender it's wrapped in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your work has also addressed these questions that, yes, we see women more now at the first stages of careers working in sport but then when you look at leadership we still see a big gap so what would be some of these experiences some of these factors that lead into this gender gap as we move on to the higher levels in terms of sport leadership yeah i think you know some of that is right just the vision of of what does success mean what does um quality leadership look like And I think I've really appreciated the work of Brene Brown and a person who says, you know, leadership can come in different forms. Leadership can actually look um, like vulnerability, like authenticity, like empathy. It doesn't always, um, she talks a lot about leading from a fear perspective, fear and power versus a I actually know who I am and I lead from strength and authenticity and vulnerability. And I think us being mindful and open to different forms of leadership is really important in coaching and in sport in general. I think also it goes a little bit to the power networks. And we talked about that in the first part in terms of mentoring and women actually finding mentors and mentors being willing to give um, young women access to the power networks. And I think 
Uh, that's one of the themes. Laura Burton talks a lot about that in her work and Sarah Leberman about um, having access and this whole thread of power um, and, and being threaded through all of the women's representation. And where is it that we can be open to giving women power? What does power look like? Uh, does it always look like lording over people? Um, and versus how could that look if it was actually servant leadership? And mm -hmm. what if we actually empowered women to be um, servants? And what would that look like? What if we empowered all leaders to look like servants and that they actually saw their role as a way to empower people as opposed to have power over them? Um, so I think some of that fundamental shift in thinking is is what it's going to take uh, sport-wide to make that happen. Mm. But sport is also quite traditional and kind of sticking on to <laughs> what has been the practice in the past. So it's quite a massive undertaking to try to disrupt these ways of thinking and the power structure that operates there. Yes, for sure. It does It does uh, get discouraging at times. And there are times I look and I think, man, I've been doing this work for 20 years and very little has changed. Uh, and and people like me have been doing the same work. Um, and, you know, I don't, I guess I don't know an answer to that. But I do understand that there are times it, it feels fundamentally discouraging. And yet every now and then, I guess you get a small win and... I think for me, watching individual lives be transformed has been a source of courage and a source of hope for me to say, maybe I'm not changing the whole world. Maybe I am not changing entire sports structures, but maybe I was fruitful in these lives and that's enough. Mm. And still, if we think of women being allowed first time to compete in long distance running events in the Olympics in the 80s, I think we have still come a long way, even if it can feel discouraging in, in many aspects. And obviously loads of work has to be still done. Yeah. But I think if we look at the developments, we still have sources for optimism. Yeah. Yeah. But so the other big topic that you worked extensively with is this work-life interface. And we discussed it a little bit in terms of your own work life in the first part. But so does this also contribute to this differentiation in the career pathways of men and women in sport that for somehow for men, for example, in coaching, it's still socially more acceptable that they will put work first, whereas for women, this kind of life design or this kind of way of living is, is much more difficult than uh, in terms of their family obligations. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It, you know, the, the whole of sport is so interesting to me. And I think what I've found in all of these years of research is that people find their own path. And we definitely still have these very gendered patterns. And even in a recent study, and I think it came in Managing Sport and Leisure, about the different ways that people manage work and life. And there's spillovers and segmenters and work accommodators and family accommodators. And uh, that was a study among 31 highly successful coaches, males and females, that were mid to late career. 
And what surprised me about that was the gender balance is really quite even mm-hmm. in that yeah. I, I would say there really are no family accommodators that are men, <laughs> but there's just as many work accommodators that are men that are women. And that really put work first and went all in in their career and, and found a way to make that happen. And there's also as many sort of spillover people as there are segmenter people. And so I think the stereotype that um, men are successful because they're all in, but women are, are not, is not true. Um, there's yep. just as many men that uh, have, have successful lives as coaches and, and parents or coaches in a family life, as there are women who do the same. I think some of the traditional notions, it, it, that I think it's popped out to me for sure that um, traditional supports within the family structure and network still are very real and that there are a lot of ways that traditional family structures favor men in a sport career. And I think it's undeniable to say in, in the studies we've done on coaching fathers where they say, oh, I don't have to worry about that. My spouse takes care of everything. And these mm-hmm. really super successful coaches who are men who in a very complimentary, like amazing, they're like, my wife is amazing. My kids turned out great because she did everything. <laughs> I can take like no ounce of credit and have these amazing adult children, but it's all because of her. So very complimentary, but you hear very, very few women who would say the same thing about um, their male partners or, or spouses and who for them, it's really about this whole constellation of a network and this whole social structure that scaffolded their their coaching career. And so I just find it interesting how it's kind of like, boy, if the coach is a male, they get their whole social structure in one person. And if the coach is a female, she has to build this entire network and her partner is one of those. Right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's interesting. And I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. Um, but I think it tells me two things is one is it is doable, but also that women have to be ridiculously more intentional about their non-work scaffolding than men do. And resourceful. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know that I have like a judgment to put on that. It just seems like that's an observation. And I think some of my thinking has shifted as I talk to young women who want to coach is so much more about here's the reality and here's what you need to do as opposed to trying to change what it is that that is, right? I always want yeah. to work against systems. I always want to work against policy. But I also think it's been helpful to young women to say, this is the reality of this. And if you want to coach, here's what you need to put in place. If you want to be in academia, here's what you need to do to put in place, whether you have a family or not, right? Just in order to have a life. Um, and so I think I've found a niche speaking both ways of that. Here's systems, here's policies, let's work from that aspect, but also here's individual realities and here's some tips for navigating it while we still work on change at the bigger level. Mm-hmm. And your work looking at both men's and women's careers um, 
in the sport industry, coaches, for example, has shown that this life balance notion that it's pretty much taken for granted that the sport work is going to <laughs> seriously kind of limit your time for other things in your life. And you've written about workaholism and the burnout and, and all these things. And, and basically in your work argued that sport is a risk profession in this in this respect. So I'm wondering, because we talked about meaningful career, sustaining a meaningful career in academia, is this meaningfulness actually part of the problem that people feel that pursuing this career in sport is so meaningful that it justifies putting all this other stuff in your life and including perhaps your relationships to a secondary position? Yeah, for sure. And I think we've seen that in two ways. One is is simply the sort of sexiness and allure of sport that uh, it's people's dream job. And, and we find um, in a number of studies that we've done that simply the passion for being great and the allure for being elite in sport is really powerful. Um, but also some of the work we've done and, and we continue to work out here is this notion of calling and where it is that uh, coaches feel a calling and how um, so many coaches feel like coaching is actually their calling in life. So um, how is it that they, I mean, we've talked about this from a couple of different ways. One from an individual perspective is what are the tensions that creates when you're, you feel like you're called to this and you are helping like these young women, these young men are just as important, are just as much of your life mission as your own family. And yeah. there really isn't like, it's not like you're putting work ahead of family because it's all, it's the development of young people is your passion, your calling, and they all sort of fit in one bucket. And I think the other uh, side of that in terms of calling that we've explored some is where do workplaces take advantage of people who feel that they're called? And so if you talk about sort of good soldier syndrome and where is it that work, that workplaces go, you know, these coaches are, this guy feels called or this woman feels called and she'll do anything for these kids or she'll do anything to be great at this because it's her calling. Where do we as employers actually leverage that um, in in sometimes really manipulative ways and play on that whole good soldier card right if you're a good soldier if you do if you're a called person you would do these things and if, if you were this you would do these things and and we sort of hook and manipulate people into um, overwork and workaholism um, by by not helping them make appropriate boundaries and by taking advantage of what they see as their calling. And that's kind of a new area that we're dabbling in that has some pretty interesting insights. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And outside of the sport research, this is also what I've read in terms of developments that earlier research was kind of showing how good thing it is for you to have highly meaningful work perhaps experience a calling or a vocation like you mentioned but then there can be this flip side which is the dark side of meaningful work so 
then for from this organizational perspective when you have these people who experience highly meaningful work they are the most committed the most dedicated long hours maybe they pay is not important for them so they are not after like higher salaries and so on so this is actually also quite quite dangerous so i wonder in your extensive research does it ever come through that some sport workers would end up feeling disillusioned about this thing? Do they ever then kind of start to think of it from that perspective, what they have sacrificed or start to feel that the system has taken advantage of them? Does this ever come through? For sure, for sure. And in fact, um, we're working on a piece right now that is the role of unexpected turning points um, and unexpected tragedies in people's lives. And again, this was something we didn't ask specifically, but emerged in the work that we were doing. And what we find is that sometimes that is a huge turning point for people um, where they were immersed in their work. They thought it was so meaningful. And then something sort of tragic happens in their family. Um, We've had people in our study that lost a child or people whose spouse passed away, or either one of their athletes or their own children got cancer or something like that. And for them, it became exactly what you're saying, this very illuminating moment that went, man, what am I doing? And some stayed in coaching, but they actually redefined a lot of what they were doing. And they came to draw stronger boundaries around that if that was something that happened in their family. Or they actually figured out that I can do this all. I'm just going to do it differently. And in fact, all what I was pouring into this, I can still get the same outcomes. I can still get the same meaningfulness with half of the effort I was putting in. I learned that I could actually give more of it away. And I was this, you know, very do-it-all micromanager person and the, my child had cancer and I had to depend on these people. And I actually found out that I could utilize my whole staff instead of trying to do it myself. So there were various outcomes. Uh, but the interesting part of me, part of the study to me was that it took something you know, really out of the ordinary for people to kind of look and, and have a shock. Um, and they resolved that shock in different ways. Didn't always mean they left coaching necessarily, but those kinds of things went, oh, what am I doing and how could it be different and how could I not just embrace this sort of sacrifice everything at all costs ethos that we want to promote in, in sport? Right. So these personal revelatory moments were that trigger kind of reflection and a reorientation in their lives yeah but you also say we already talked about the sport world is quite resistant to change and this is also in terms of this work-life interface work-life balance that for many uh, people working in sports seems to be quite quite off and so would you say that can we see any structural or any cultural changes to address these issues or is it still remaining at the level of personal efforts or individual self-management tactics or can we see any cultural change and what would it require for this to happen? 
Well, you know, I think one remarkable change uh, in the context is things like, for example, the NCAA mandating time off in the summer for the entirety of uh, NCAA football staffs. Uh, that happened a couple of years ago. Um, and I mean, I just like sat back and went, that's a thing. And I have several um, coaches' wives who I'm friends with of Division One football coaches who went, this is the first time, you know, in 20 years of our marriage or whatever that we had a couple weeks off in the summer. And the only reason my spouse was willing to take that time off is because everybody took it off. And, uh -huh. and there yeah. was no chance that they were sort of falling behind someone else and that someone else was outworking them. And so to me, that's illustrative of, I think the only way that change is going to happen is through those kinds of things, because sport is very competitive and people are not going to want to be held back. Um, they want to outwork the next person. They don't want to lose a competitive advantage against someone else and understandably so. And so it can only happen to, in my opinion, on those kinds of big level systemic types of rules or policies that level it for everyone and that make it that nobody's getting a competitive advantage here. And I don't know how realistic those are for other, you know, sport contexts, but the fact that that actually happened to me was remarkable. Yeah, that's encouraging that these changes are happening. And I'm thinking just in terms of the cultural level. And if I think of academia, which is also quite the competitive setting, I think there are now much more discussions about this work-life balance issues and especially the well-being, mental health issues with PhD students and early career researchers are now being discussed a lot so i think there are all, there is also much more awareness of these potentially unhealthy sides of the academic working culture and we also talk about the mental health of elite athletes a lot these days it's one of the big topics in sports psychology and so you know i would think that these discussions will also enter the coaching profession that the way that um, coaches and others who work in the sport industry has been quite unsustainable. So I would expect that these discussions, at least to some extent, will will arise. Yeah, and they have to. Um, they have to. Yeah. Just even the recent death of the Stanford soccer player uh, brings those kinds of things to light of what are we, what kinds of pressure cookers are we putting people in? What are the supports that we're offering or not offering? But I like also what you said earlier about language matters and the way we talk about things matters. And I think one of the uh, more recent things that's that's coming out is the idea that asking for help is actually really good. Um, and this whole notion that um, it's somehow virtuous to just soldier through and to not get your own needs met. And in fact, um, some of the conversations we're having lately is that it's not about being virtuous. It's actually dangerously irresponsible to yourself and to others uh, to yeah. not look after your own needs. And how can we shift that conversation that it's not weak 
to say you need a little help. It's not weakness to say, wow, I got to take a breath here. It's actually healthy. It's actually good for you and in the long haul. And, and how can we have a longer term perspective and not have to just use people up in the process? And how might that longer term perspective actually be better for organizations in the long haul? I don't know. There's a lot of intriguing questions left to ask for sure. (laughs) I think these are the wonderful closing words for our conversation today. So thank you so much, Marlene. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you today. It's been great. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show, it would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day